Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's, it's okay. Yes, you can say it. It is a delight to see not only our church family here, but many uh, visiting with us, and it's always a, a good time for us to be together as a family. And if you know Christ, and this is your very first time in these walls, we welcome you and love to uh, fellowship with you. If you are not certain if you know Christ yet, it's our prayer that by the end of this evening you will, because there is nothing better, nothing better at all. We're going to look at Psalm 98 this evening for just a few minutes. Psalm 98, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay, I'll just read it to you. And we keep the lights dim on Christmas Eve anyway. Psalm 98 says this. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and people's with equity. Well, for Christmas this year, I've been going through a series we've called Songs of Emmanuel. We've been taking some of our most beloved and favorite Christmas carols and preaching the texts of Scripture which either inspired them or are closely related to them at some level. And tonight concludes that series, and we're looking at Joy to the World. Joy to the World was written by the 18th century Englishman Isaac Watts and Watts is most famous for being one of the most prolific hymn writers in the history of the church. But what's less known about Watts, though, is that his passion for hymn writing was actually driven by his passion for preaching. He was a brilliant man. He was thoroughly grounded in the scriptures. He went to seminary at the age of 16. He became an associate pastor at the age of 22 and a senior pastor at 26. And so he would write these hymns as a way to impress the text of Scripture upon his congregation. In other words, he would base a hymn off of the text that he was preaching, and then he would have his congregation sing this hymn so that they might have that text deeply imprinted into their hearts. But what's even less known about Watts is that not only was he a a preacher, but he was a prolific poet. And he specifically wrote poems to help his people like his hymns, understand various scripture texts. And in 1719, he published a book of poems in which every poem was based on a psalm. And he included in his poems how that psalm related prophetically to the coming of Christ. And in this book of poems, he included one based on Psalm 98. And more than a century later, the second half of the poem was adapted and set to music to give us what has become one of our most beloved Christmas carols, Joy to the World. And so Joy to the World was not originally written as a Christmas carol. It was written as a poem to explain Psalm 98. 
Now, if you've been with us, the last time we looked at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, and we saw that the prophecy of his birth in that city, as found in the Old Testament book of Micah, really is surrounded by predictions not just of his first coming, but of his second coming as well. The fact that Christ is coming back. And so tonight I want to honor that connection that the Christmas story is only half the story. The first coming of Christ in meekness is a precursor to his second coming in glory. And when Christ comes, one of the many, many texts which tells us what his arrival on earth is going to be like is Psalm 98. And so this evening, I'd just like to briefly share with you a few themes from Psalm 98 which tell us what the time of Christ's next coming will be like. And we'll see also um, how the very familiar hymn, Joy to the World, fits in with this. And then we'll get to sing it as well in a few minutes. So let me just walk through a few themes. And we'll just touch on these briefly. The first theme we'll just call kingdom. Kingdom. Multiple times in Psalm 98, God is called by his covenant name, Yahweh. Now, if you don't see that in your Bible, it's expressed in our English translations with the, the, the word Lord in all capitals. That is the traditional way English Bibles express Yahweh. But Yahweh is the God of the Bible who created all things. Yahweh is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. And so having that correct translation, verse 1, sing to Yahweh. Verse 2, Yahweh has made known his salvation. Verses 4 and 5, make a joyful noise to Yahweh. But then in verse 6, it says, make a joyful noise before the king, Yahweh. Now this gets very interesting because all of a sudden, we see that there is a king. Where is he? He's on the earth. Verse 9, the king who is Yahweh is on the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words... God is the king, and the king is God. This is reflected in the very first stanza of Joy to the World, the most familiar line. Joy to the world, the Lord, Yahweh, is come. Let earth receive her what? Her king, Jesus Christ. And so the theology of Watts was well developed, and he understood that Jesus is God, as expressed in Psalm 98. Now, Living in a sinful world, and particularly being Americans, we are suspicious of kings, and we're suspicious of kingdoms. And for us, kings and kingdoms belong in movie theaters and fairy tales, and that's where they should stay. Generally, we're not a fan of kings who are truly all-powerful, and why is that? Well, because in the history of the world, as we all know, all-powerful rulers are more often than not prone to injustice, to corruption, and even to genocide. Because they can't handle it. They're sinners. And yet, if we were really, really honest, there is a small part of us that longs for a king. We long for a leader who will impart wisdom and help and protection and prosperity and and fairness and integrity. But in all the history of the world, we haven't found one yet. But Jesus will be that king. He will be the king who brings peace. In fact, the book of Zechariah, verse Uh, Chapter 8 tells us what kind of peace he'll bring in the city of Jerusalem, for example. By the way, Jerusalem has been overrun and completely destroyed twice. It's been under siege about 40 times. It's It's been gone back and forth between enemies about 46 times. It's one of the most hotly contested cities on planet Earth. But here's how Jerusalem will be according to Zechariah 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of happiness. There's a second theme in Psalm 98, and this one is obvious, and that's the theme of joy. The theme of joy. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 6, make a joyful noise before the king. Verse 8, let the hills sing for joy. And have you noticed something when we're reading this? That joy brought by the coming of the king is associated with noise. It's noisy expression. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word for joy, the Hebrew word for joyful noise, has the idea of loud shouting and and singing and rejoicing. Let Let me give you a comparison. This is not the quiet Christian joy that we're called to have even in the midst of hardship and trials and pain. That joy at times is silent, and that joy at times is internal, and that joy at times is quiet. This is Christian joy that says that the hardships and the trials and the pains are finished and they demand expression. Let me put it to you this way. If all of a sudden I could make every single trial, pain, difficulty, suffering and tribulation in your life go away, would you simply say, well, in the internal part of my heart, I'm thanking God? No, you'd be jumping up and down. You'd be so excited. This is why joy to the world is so filled with an expression of joy. The first stanza, joy to the world. The second stanza, joy to the earth. And repeat the what? The sounding joy. It's joy that makes noise. This is not the quiet, peaceful joy the Christian can experience even in grief and in sorrow. This is the loud joy of victory. This is the end of sorrow. And that will be noisy. There's a third theme we see in Psalm 98, and that's the theme of liberation. Of liberation. When Adam and Eve introduced sin and rebellion into the world, it brought the curse of God, it brought human death, and it brought a need for a redeemer. One of the effects of the curse was that the perfect creation of God would now be marked by sin, by decay, by degradation, and by death. The curse of God, as recorded in Genesis 3, even said that the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles if you're ever out in your yard pulling those weeds and you stick a thorn in your finger you can thank adam for that because we have a sinful world vegetation is trying to ruin the land if i could put it this way the earth is trying to kill you there is uh, there there's devastating weather earthquakes tsunamis volcanoes the occasional dust storm and this is adam's fault And more broadly, it's the fault of mankind's sin. And it won't be undone until the end of all things when God reverses the curse of sin completely, including, by the way, the redemption of all who will be saved from their sins. Romans 8 tells us of this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That is Adam in hope that the creation itself, here's the theme, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the very next verse in Romans 8 says that creation groans waiting to be liberated. And now, the second coming of Christ won't completely eradicate the curse, 
on creation. That only happens at the very end of all things after Christ has reigned on earth. Revelation 22.3 says that no longer will there be anything accursed. But when Christ returns, there most definitely will be a liberation of creation, at least in part. And the Bible speaks of this all over the place. Isaiah 35 says that the wilderness will bloom with roses and the deserts will sing with joy. Isaiah 41 says that God will open new rivers and barren mountains. He will make fountains in the valleys. In the wildernesses will be pools of water. And in the dry places, he'll plant acacia trees, myrtle trees, olive trees, pine trees. The the creation itself will begin to reflect the fact that the curse has been put down. Or how about this one? Part of the curse has been a distance and a, a fear between mankind and the animal kingdom. But that's not going to be the case anymore. Isaiah 6, 11, 6 through 9 says that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the calf with the lion, and a little child will lead them. Would you take your three-year-old to the zoo and just hoist him over the fence in the lion's den and say, go have fun? Not today we wouldn't. Verse 7, in fact, says that the hunting and killing by carnivores will be done, that the lions are going to be eating salad. And it says that toddlers will be playing cheerfully with cobras. How nice will that be? Listen, this is why Psalm 98 personifies creation itself as celebrating liberation. Psalm 98, 7 and 8, let the sea roar and all that fills it. That's sea life. The the world, literally the dry land and those who dwell in it, that's the animal life. And it says, let the river clap their hands, let the hills Sing for joy together. There's release and there's finally freedom and liberation. And of course, the the great hymn, Joy to the World, reflects the joy of creation. The first stanza, and heaven and nature sing. The second stanza, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. The third stanza, no more let sins and sorrows grow, grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Speaking of heaven and nature singing, that's our next theme is music. This is obvious in Psalm 98. First, we have God's greatest musical expression, singing. It has words which describe God and give God glory. That's why singing is always the best music, because it expresses theology, it expresses truth. Verse 1 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a, a new song. Why do we need a new song? Well, we need a, a response to things that haven't happened yet. An earth released from much of its bondage to sin. A response to seeing Jesus Christ physically on earth. This will require a new song. Verse 4 has an air of unrestrained spontaneity to it. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And not only with our voices, but with instruments as well. With the lyre, this represents all stringed instruments. And with the trumpets and the sound of the horn. These are important instruments in the Bible. In the Bible, the sound of the trumpet is most often associated with God calling his people together, gathering them. And the sound of the horn, the shofar, the the ram's horn, is associated with victory over enemies. And so we have strings, we have brass. What's left? We need percussion. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands. It's all there. How magnificent will the music in Christ's kingdom be? There's another theme, the theme of love. 
The theme of love, verse 3 says, He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Now Israel has rejected God in countless ways in the Old Testament and her ultimate rejection, of course, was when she crucified the very Son of God that she should have been worshiping. But God promised Abraham, the father of Israel, that the nation which would come from him would be blessed by God for all time. Why would God do this? Well, he gives the reason in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. This is steadfast love. This is covenant-keeping love. In fact, the end of verse 3 says that all the world will see that God is faithful in love to his promises to Israel. And this is important to us because if God is faithful to his promises to Israel, then he is faithful to his promises to all who would place their faith in him through Jesus Christ. In fact, the fourth stanza of Joy to the World rightly proclaims that the nations must admit that God is a loving, promise-keeping God when they see Israel restored and at peace and in prosperity. The, The stanza says, and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his what? His love. There's another theme, the theme of justice. Justice, the the curse of sin has now been significantly pushed back, especially in nature. But sin still exists, although it is in subdued and subjugated form. The kingdom of Christ will be inaugurated after his victory at the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 16 says this, after he judges all the living survivors of the Great Tribulation. Matthew 25 speaks of this. He will have brought with him from heaven all of the resurrected believers in Christ through all the ages. But the living survivors still on earth, those who survived the great tribulation, will then continue to bear children who still bear sin's curse from Adam. There will be outward obedience, even though there may be inward rebellion. In fact, Psalm 72.9 says that even the enemies of Christ will lick the dust before him. In other words, they'll obey at least outwardly. In fact, Zechariah 14 says that all nations of the earth will go to give honor and glory to Christ every year, but any nation who refuses will have no reign. And so Christ will be reigning and he will be ruling with great power. On earth there will still be a need for justice, but what a justice it will be. No corruption, nothing wrong ever happening Verse 2 of our psalm says he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations that the, the perfectly righteous one will demonstrate his righteousness such that the end of the psalm says he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Can you imagine every decision of our president, every decision of Congress, every decision of every judge, every decision of every official everywhere always perfectly right? That's what this kingdom will be like. It'll be a relief. And this is just as the fourth stanza of Joy to the World announces, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. In fact, Christ's justice will be so perfect, so complete, that Isaiah chapter 2 says that He will eradicate war from the world. He will truly reign as the Prince of Peace. So my question is, who would not want to live in this time characterized by 
kingdom, by joy, by liberation, by music, by love, by justice. Who wouldn't want to live in that? Well, shockingly, almost no one wants to live in that. Most do not want this. Why is that? Well, to be qualified to be a kingdom citizen in Christ's kingdom, one must humbly repent of sin, acknowledging your absolute inability to stand before God because you violated His holy laws, you rebelled against Him in your heart. And this act of humbly placing your faith in Jesus Christ, of acknowledging your sin, of falling on your face before a holy God, acknowledging that you are not good enough to stand before Him and you need forgiveness, that act is what Jesus called the narrow gate. And listen to his comments on the narrow gate from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is what the Bible often refers to as salvation which is the final theme that we see in Psalm 98. Verse 2 says, The Lord has made known His salvation. Verse 3, All the ends of the earth have, have seen the salvation of our God. And of course, Joy to the World acknowledges Christ as the Savior. The second stanza tells us that the Savior reigns. And the first stanza right away makes a gospel plea, makes a, a begging call to salvation. Let every heart prepare Him room. It is a call to come to faith in Christ. Now, to qualify for and to participate in this glorious coming age of kingdom, joy, liberation, music, love, justice, we have to go all the way back to the manger. We have to go to the manger where Jesus lay in Bethlehem. Now, why do we have to do that? Because God requires for your salvation a perfect substitute on two fronts on the front of life and on the front of death. Because to be qualified for Christ's coming kingdom of kingdom and joy and liberation, music, love and justice, you either must live a perfect life or you must pay the penalty of your sin, which is death and judgment. You can't do the first one and you can't survive the second. And so that leaves us in desperate, dire need. And so God came to earth as a man. He came as a baby to live first a perfect life, which you needed, which is offered to God the Father in exchange for your sinful life, and then to die the judgment death of a sinner on the cross in exchange for the wages of sin, which you deserve. You deserve eternal punishment. You deserve separation from God's kingdom. Not one person in this room deserves to participate in that glorious kingdom we've described. But what does this do? When Christ has offered himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute. Well, by no merits or works of your own, you are now justified by God. Listen to this. As if you are as righteous as Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us clearly, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so through Christ, now you're qualified to enter into the kingdom of Christ. And this gift of salvation is instant, it's permanent, and it's eternal with all the rewards and benefits. And that's why the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. 
Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And that's why Isaac Watts wrote, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now, in case I wasn't clear, someone might ask the question, but how can I be qualified to enter God's kingdom? Well, simply by following the instructions of Jesus Christ himself. In Mark 1.15, he said, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how. That's what qualifies you. Well, at Christmas, we traditionally exchange gifts. But the greatest Christmas gift is not from you. It is to you. It's from Christ himself. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And if you will receive that gift by faith, you too can participate in the kingdom with joy and liberation and music and love and justice because you have received salvation. That's what Christmas is really about. It's not just his first coming. It is looking forward to his second coming. And the simple question is, will you be there or not? My hope, my prayer, my exhortation is walk through the narrow gate. Walk through the narrow gate. Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we thank you for Psalm 98. It is glorious in its excitement about the second coming of Christ. And now... Uh, As we celebrate during the Christmas season, of course, his first coming, his birth and his being placed humbly in a manger was really just the precursor to his growing up years and living, as Luke chapter 2 says, in perfect obedience to his parents. As the Bible says that he never has sinned, he lived a perfect life and then he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, which was due to you. And then he proved that the price was completely paid by being raised from the dead and in glorious perfection. Then he ascended into heaven where even now he intercedes for all who would place their faith in him. And then there will be a day when he gets up off of his throne and readies himself to return. And our prayer, Lord, and my prayer for every person here is that we would be ready for his return once again. We pray for his sake, for his glory, and for the salvation of all who would hear. Amen.